welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. A special welcome to Matthew. He's back from vacation and back from being ill. It's great to be back and not ill. Yeah, it's nice to have you back. You're looking bronzed from the Florida sun. Um, I saw some pictures of food that you ate that looked delicious. Yeah, it was some good Cuban food. I uh, I would highly recommend. That's great. Well, glad to have you back on the podcast. And AJ, nice to see you again. Now, for our listeners, which day are we reading? This is days 64 through day 70. Okay, that's pretty far into the year. Um, how are you guys feeling about your Bible reading? Starting to feel it a little bit. Old Testament, lots of statutes and ordinances. I don't know. We're still at Sinai. Though what I think, we're still at Sinai when this was given. Ready Prom- to make it to the promised land. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I have constantly been reminded about how little of the Bible I actually know, which is somewhat depressing because... I've spent a lot of money and a lot of years in school trying to learn the Bible. And as soon as we get to a book that I either have not preached from or taken a class specifically on, or I took that class more than five years ago, I feel like I just can't say something completely certain about any of these texts because I just have no idea. I mean, I can take stabs at things, but it is really tough to read texts like this and not know what the breadth of interpretations are, how to understand it in the larger story of the Bible. Uh, that's That's been the hardest part for me as we've been reading through the Bible so far. Yeah, and for some of us who have never taken classes on many of these books of the Bible, I'm constantly referencing the, the study Bible notes. And I know you mentioned the Gospel Transformation Bible mm-hmm. last week. And so I found that Bible and, and referenced those notes for this week as well. And I I do think that's helpful um, to, to at least have those resources to reference. Yeah, I think the Gospel Transformation Bible, especially for these Pentateuch texts where it's hard to read them anyway, those notes will take you a long way. Yeah. So we're going to finish the book of Leviticus today and start the book of Numbers, which has a great descriptive title of, of what's going on in that book. Yeah, there were a lot of numbers from Instead what of I read. Leviticus, which you missed that pronunciation that Aaron prefers. Yeah, it's it's not an actual pronunciation that anyone uses. Uh, You use it. And it's a little misleading because much of Leviticus or Leviticus is not actually about the Levites, you know? So that's one of the misleading things about that title. At least Leviticus, you know, you can get some, you know. Yeah, you can connect it to something in the book, which is why I like to say it that way. Right. Even though that is not anything any scholarly individual will ever do. We'll get into numbers in a minute here, but I can go ahead and say a little bit about the the name of that book. Um, in, in the whole Pentateuch, it's kind of strange that for our English Bibles, we take the LXX or the Latin naming of the book instead of the Hebrew naming of the book. So usually for the Hebrew naming, it takes the first words of, of the sentence in the book. So, for example, in numbers, it's... Uh, uh, in the wilderness is the name of the book. Um, we take the Latin name that is connected to the census and has to do with numbers, and we call the book numbers. But there are really only two sensi. I don't. I don't know what the plural of a census is. Senses. Yeah. Whatever the plural of that word is, um, there. I think there are only really two main ones in the book, 
and it has a lot more to do with um, being in the wilderness, the location of, of Israel, than it does with the census. Let's talk about the end of Leviticus here in Leviticus 25 through 27. I want to skip over chapter 25 unless there's something you guys want to say there in terms of the year of Jubilee and get straight to Leviticus 26, because this, I think, is really, um, if, if chapter 16 is the climax of the book and the center of the book, this is the foreboding prospective future of Israel recorded in the book. Um, so if the Day of Atonement brings great hope and the possibility of dwelling with God, chapter 26 reveals the fact that Israel is not going to be content to dwell with God. Instead, Israel will violate the covenant. Um, So at the beginning of chapter 26, God tells Israel, if you keep the covenant, then I'll do all of these wonderful things for you. But then he says, if you violate the terms of the covenant, if you fail to obey my word, then this bad thing will happen to you. And if you still aren't, willing to abide by the terms of the covenant, then this other bad thing will happen to you. And progressively through the majority of chapter 26, there's an intensification of curses that are found. So there's this escalating judgment that will be um, executed upon Israel for their covenant violation. And you get the sense that God is about to treat Israel like he just treated Egypt. Yeah, and it does sound like Moses is writing this knowing the people are not going to keep these statutes. And this is going to be more of a prophecy than, than an, you know, if, if you don't keep this. Yeah, and by my, my reading, this is Moses quoting God. So it's not Moses, it's not like his farewell speech at the end of Deuteronomy. This is actually the direct word of the Lord that makes it seem like all these things are going to come to pass. And they do. They really do. Yeah. And, and one that I want to point out in particular is um, that exile is part of this. So we've been going through the book of Esther in our sermon series. And in that place, they're outside of the land under a foreign ruler and experiencing all of the curses of the covenant. Some of Israel's returned to the land. These people have gone further away to Susa. Um, but this is a word of hope from Le- Leviticus twenty six forty four. God says, yet in spite of this, the rejection of him, while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject or abhor them so as to destroy them and break my covenant with them, since I am the Lord their God. For their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations to be their God. I am the Lord. So it seems like the preservation of Jews in Persia is not because they've returned to the Lord, but in spite of their sin, um, God is remaining faithful to them, even though they've forgotten him. Um, and then particularly here, the main emphasis is on God's covenant with Abraham, carried on with Isaac and Jacob. So it's not even so much the covenant at Sinai that's preserving them, but God's commitment to Abraham and his offspring. In the beginning of Numbers, we do see God's faithfulness in God's covenant to Abraham through the census. You know, we see that God fulfilled his promise to multiply Abraham's family and to make them a great nation. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we started Exodus, we heard language, uh, like creation language, describing Israel's growth in population and numbers. And now when we get to the book of Numbers, in the census, it's like God's promise to uh, make Abraham a great nation is coming to fulfillment before our eyes. And 
we know, according to this text, that it's only the second year after Israel's left the land of Egypt, and now they're big enough to have armies. You know, you can imagine all of the hustle and bustle and commotion of establishing a nation. I mean, if you read some early history of the United States, is is this nation is kind of constituting, we might say, and forming armies and all of these things. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of confusion. And there are a lot of bad things that happen because there's not the stability of a nation yet. Well, all of that is going to come on display in the book of Numbers. Um, but particularly what will be on display is the way that God responds to individuals who violate his commands. Some pretty dark stuff in chapter 26. It's kind of tough to read. The... Uh... The part of Leviticus in the punishment or the curse or whatever, if they disobey, where it says you'll eat your own children. I remember that happens in a later book. Again, Kings. Yeah. Yeah, and so, I believe during um, the siege at Jerusalem later on, this is something that happens, I think, repeatedly in in the history of Israel. Yeah. I didn't quite understand it, but chapter 27... It's giving values to people. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Yeah, so it seems like in chapter 27, there are times where someone will make a vow to the Lord that involves the assessment of people. And I don't know totally what that means, but I imagine it to mean. And this, again, is one of those situations where I just don't don't know the Bible as well as I'd like to, and probably we're, we're all in that situation. But you can remember other Old Testament accounts where someone dedicates their child to the Lord. So when Hannah dedicates Sam, uh, Samuel to the Lord, for example, or... Um, you know, even I forget the name of the judge in the book of Judges who makes a, a vow to the Lord that he would sacrifice the first thing when he when he walks out of his tent that he sees. And it's his daughter, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a rash vow that shouldn't have been made. But I would think that the instructions in Leviticus 27 would give this guy a way to make an assessment of the individual that he vowed to the Lord and pay that to the Lord or or to the sanctuary, you know, temple or whatever, and in that day, tabernacle's still right, and not sacrifice his daughter. Are um, we going to have to wait until we get to judges to talk about that? Yeah, Is that, we, you think what we can, but I, I don't know if that's what's going on here, but I think certainly for situations like Hannah's son, um, if someone dedicated their child to the Lord in that way, like, I'm giving this person over to your service, or um, I am going to give over my slaves to service it in, in the house of the Lord or something. I don't know what the situations might be, but it's a way for someone to be able to pay money to this that will fund the building of the sanctuary, the, the, all of this sort of thing, instead of the life of an individual. I think that's right. And, and this is one of those places where I just have to say, if, you, if anyone who's listening knows what's actually going on here better, let me know because I, I think it's, it's interesting. The 50 shekels for males such as ourselves reminded me of 50 cent. Just saying. <laughs> wonder if that's where he got his name. You know, I, I would doubt it, but I, I, I don't know his background. 50 cent, 50 shek? I don't know. Um, I don't know that I would take it as an indication of the value of the human as a human. 
I think it's an indication of what they can contribute. So in that society, of course, uh, not a knowledge economy where males and females are going to be able to work in the same economy pretty equally. Um, obviously, the, the male has a greater assessment. Um, same thing with children, uh, these, these sorts of things. But I wouldn't take it as a statement of value. Yeah, guys can carry heavier stuff generally. Generally. I mean, obviously not always. Like there are women who are stronger than I am. It's true. And, but generally, you know, stereotypically that's the case. In the book of Numbers, where we're turning our attention for the first five chapters, I've already commented a little bit about the name. Um, the Lord is speaking to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness. And that's where the, the Hebrew text takes the name of the book in, in the wilderness. And, um, this is God speaking to Moses. He's showing through the census the fulfillment of the promises. We've already commented on this. And it's very nice that at the beginning of the book, over and over, there's this refrain that the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. It carries on what we felt at the end of Exodus, where it seems like Israel is finally living in covenant fidelity to God, um, though that will change pretty quickly. Now, I want to point out that at the end of Numbers 1, we're getting a scene that's very much like the Garden of Eden, and it's almost like the tabernacle um, is going to take on the role of the garden, and the Levites are going to take on the role of the cherubim that were stationed outside of the garden to prevent Adam and Eve from returning into the presence of the Lord. Um, So if you are looking at Numbers 1, um, the Levites are instructed to set the tabernacle up whenever uh, they stop at a campsite, and any unauthorized person who comes near it is to be put to death. Well, that sounds a little bit like the warning uh, for Adam and Eve, at least what's communicated by positioning an angel or multiple angels with flaming swords there. Um, And then... Uh, the description in verse 53 is that the Levites are to camp around the tabernacle of the testimony and watch over it so that no wrath will fall on the Israelite community. In other words, so that no one will need to be put to death. And that word, to watch over it, is the, the same word in Genesis 3.24, where God positioned the cherubim to watch over the garden, uh, to guard it, shamar. So we, t- we talk about that w- Hebrew word and in a Bible class where I went through Genesis, where in the beginning, Adam was instructed to uh, work and to shamar the garden, to guard it. But then after he sinned, he was sent out of the garden to work the ground, and now a cherubim is set up to guard the garden. Well, now it seems like this class of priests, the Levites, are going to take on that guarding role, and the tabernacle is equated here than with uh, the Garden of Eden. In uh, Steve Dempster's book, D&D, the title to this yeah. Numbers chapter is The Journey to Hell and Back. You know, I that read that section today. Did you? Um, in preparation for yeah. the podcast. So he's referencing Stephen Dempster's book, Dominion and Dynasty. I like to call it D&D. I thought you were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> no. Um, so, so he points out that the heirs of Israel... Are, are exemplified through the place names that are recorded throughout the book, 
like, uh, so they'll sin in a particular way, and then they call this place, I don't know, like the fiery desert or whatever, something hellish. Yeah, yeah. So almost every place name along the way is going to be negative because they violated the covenant and received judgment from the Lord. Huh. As we continue reading in the book of Numbers, uh, we get through the census accounts. These are very tough to read um, because they're just not interesting to us for a lot of reasons. Number one, because we don't have a tabernacle and we don't have tribes that are assigned different duties related to the tabernacle. But I think at a minimum, we at least should pick up on the fact that the promises about Israel growing and flourishing are being fulfilled and that God takes very seriously who serves and how they serve in the tabernacle, this place that designates his presence with his people. And not only that they are multiplying and growing, but that they're able, like you said earlier, to establish an army, and then you know, God is enabling them to fulfill the land promise too, because they're going to have an army and be able to conquer the people that are there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to return to that okay. comment in a moment. But even as you look at the census with the uh, different Levites with different responsibilities relating to the tabernacle, you'll notice that those who are dealing with things in the innermost place, uh, they have instructions and then they have a warning that if they, they fail to do this correctly, they will die. But then the further away you're removed from God's presence, those warnings aren't there so much. Uh, it's not a warning of death. And so you get somewhat a picture of the intensity of God's presence and what it means to be closer and closer to God's presence. It is a fearful thing, and that's why a mediator is necessary. Um, and the, the priests do that for Israel, particularly the high priests on the Day of Atonement. Now, as we continue reading, we get to uh, chapter 5, verse 3, and all of the things that we've read so far lead up to this statement that God gives where he says that I dwell among them. So whenever we're reading the Bible, but especially in the Pentateuch, I think we want to track any statements about God's presence. And what we come to understand is that the entire life of Israel is going to be centered around the presence of God who dwells with them. And that's actually how all of our lives should be. We should center our life around the fact that God dwells with us by the Spirit, uh, that we're being built up as a temple. And obviously there's great privilege that comes with that, but it's also a reminder that we need to orient our lives towards God who dwells among us. And where we sometimes criticize Israel for failing to do that, and we'll have plenty of occasions to do that as we read through the book of Numbers, we should recall the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says that these things happened to Israel, but they were written down for your instruction. So we need to learn what it means to dwell in the presence of God. As the text goes on, I think one of the most important features of learning what it means to have God dwelling among us is changing the way that we relate to one another and understanding that when we sin against a fellow covenant member, we're also sinning against the covenant Lord. We're sinning against God. So in chapter 5, verse 6, the Lord tells Moses to tell the Israelites, when a man or a woman commits any sin against another— that person acts unfaithfully toward the Lord and is guilty. And I think that this is probably what motivates the Apostle Paul throughout 1 Corinthians whenever he says, 
when you sin against your brother in this way, you're also sinning against the Lord. So when you sin committing sexual immorality, you're actually sinning against the Lord. When you sin uh, with this issue of meat offered to idols, you're sinning against your brother or sister. When you sin, um, when you come to the Lord's table against your brother and sister, you're actually sinning against the Lord. So I think Paul really knows this. He gets it, and he gets what it means for God to dwell among them and to be part of God's covenantal community. Not to rewind too much, I do have a question. How come the Levites were the ones protecting the thing? Why did did they get picked? I'm glad that you brought up the question of why the Levites. I've been pondering this a little bit today, and I read one guy who was suggesting that what we're starting to see take shape here connects all the way back to the promise that the woman would have an offspring, a seed, who would crush the head of the serpent, bruise bruise the head of the serpent. And you start to get this idea that one person and one entity or, or family line can represent the whole nation as the promised seed. So For example, in Leviticus 16, where only the high priest, who is a Levite, can go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of Israel, he functions as a representative of Israel there. So what he does, Israel does, and what Israel does, he does. They they become one and the same. And the same is true with the Levites. This one family line of Israel comes to represent all of Israel before the Lord. And what this helps us understand— eventually, is that there's a promised seed, one offspring, Jesus, who becomes the true Israel, who is so identified with Israel that he can become the high priest, uh, the our Levite, so to speak, who offers sacrifice on our behalf. Does that help at all, or maybe that's just as unclear? Yeah, that's helpful. I didn't know uh, one of the chapters they had a lot of talk about firstborn stuff. That That guy wasn't the firstborn, was he? The tribe that that's from? Yeah, Levi was definitely not the oldest. But the point is, they're their own separate class, but the firstborn of every animal and every creature, every son, was consecrated to the Lord because God didn't kill the Israelites' firstborn sons like he did to the Egyptian firstborn sons. So this is another place where Leviticus 27 comes into play because uh, these individuals were already consecrated to the Lord. Um, so they were supposed to be redeemed. There was a price that was to pay, be paid for those sons to, is a redemption price to the Lord. Yeah, so we're we're now in the jealousy ritual portion, and it's dealing with a situation where a husband suspects that his wife has not lived in fidelity with him, uh, but he can't prove it. He just has a feeling of jealousy. So there's a ritual prescribed that will reveal whether the woman is guilty or not guilty. And this is one of those hard texts in the Bible that on the one hand, we just have to say we are in a different culture and society and we have no idea what's going on there. But I think I would point you to Dan Miller's sermon on this text that's on Eden Baptist Church's website. I don't recall everything that he said about this, but whatever he said was really, really good. And I think that in that sermon, he contrasted it to other ancient Near Eastern practices where in these exact situations, the husband could just act extremely cruelly to his wife and um, I think do things that would definitely result in her death. So this may be incorrect, but something like 
throwing her into a lake. And if she drowned, you know, maybe we have, maybe I'm confusing this with like Salem witch trials or something, but it, it was very much like that to where it was a no-win situation. Um, here, though, this is not going to kill the woman. And we can believe that the God who changed um, properties miraculously in Egypt can do so here. And he's in control of these things. Um, God is the one who determines the lots, correct? You know, these sorts of ideas are at play here. So there's no way that this woman is going to be murdered or um, unfairly treated in this situation when in all of the surrounding nations she would be. So I look at it as an act of graciousness, most likely. Um, maybe, Maybe I'm wrong there, but I think Israelite women are being treated better than any of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors. I would not recommend that somebody try this now, in part because the priesthood is not established. It's no more, so you wouldn't be able to follow this ritual anyway, and it's not the instruction that we receive in the New Testament regarding feelings of jealousy. As we continue through the book of Numbers in the coming weeks and throughout the Old Testament, I would just encourage you, wherever you are not sure how to interpret a smaller text like this, keep working to grab onto the big picture. In our recent Bible class, I tried to argue that the main story of the Bible is that God is establishing his kingdom through his covenants with his people. And I articulated five aspects of God's kingdom that includes God's people, a place for God's people to be in and and for God to dwell with them. So that's God's presence um, beneath God's power, his appointed rulership. So even if you might not be able to understand all the details, as I can't, keep looking for the way that this is happening, where God is establishing a people, putting them in a place where his presence will dwell with them under his um, divine kingly power. As we turn to the New Testament reading, we're going to be talking about Mark 8, 1 through eleven eleven. For the purposes of this podcast, even though our reading in Mark starts with the feeding of the 4,000 and extends all the way to the triumphal entry, I would like to focus in on the natural end caps of of our reading, which is the healing of the blind man in Mark 8, starting in verse 22, extending through the healing of another blind man, this one given a name Bartimaeus, that ends in Mark 10, 52. And I think that this is an intentional literary unit that's been put together by Mark. He's constructing his writing in this way, and uh, there's a contrast between these two blind men. The first blind man is healed partially and then finally healed, Um, and then he sees everything clearly, and Jesus sends him away. When Bartimaeus is healed, he's healed immediately, and he begs to go with Jesus and he follows Jesus on the road. So you have two very different encounters. Uh, But beyond that, I want to interpret the, or at least compare, the healing of blind Bartimaeus with the account of Jesus's interactions with his disciples in the previous uh, section. So in Mark 10, 35 to 45, Jesus is interacting with his disciples, and I think that this is set up specifically in contrast with blind Bartimaeus, that account there. So we, we can compare and contrast these things, okay? And, and I think we're intended to do this. We're intended to read these as isolated units, and then we're intended to read them in conversation with each other. 
And I'll try to do that with just these two, but I think you can do these with almost every narrative in in Mark and really in all of the Gospels. I'm looking forward to this. I'm not sure where you're going, but okay. I'm interested. So, so first, as we compare Jesus' disciples and blind Bartimaeus, we can compare the people who speak to Jesus. So in the first narrative, James and John are coming to see Jesus. These men are spiritually enlightened followers of Christ, we might say. They've been his disciples from the beginning. They've heard his message. Um, they're, they're not the wealthiest of individuals, uh, but they were wealthy enough that they could take time to follow Christ around it for these three years. They, you know, fishermen were not the lowest people on the totem pole in society. I don't, I, you know, so, so these are people who should have the benefit of knowledge and position with Jesus. In comparison, there's blind Bartimaeus, who's described as a blind beggar, um, the son of Timaeus sitting by the roadside. Um, Bar- Bartimaeus, this is a side note, Bar just means son of, essentially. So he's Bartimaeus, is son of Timaeus. Um, so he's, he's this uneducated guy, it seems. He's this poor individual who's a beggar on the side of the road. Um, unlike uh, James and John, who are taught by Jesus himself, this guy has never been around Jesus before. He's probably only heard of Jesus by, from people who have passed by him on the road. Um, so you see a difference in their position and knowledge uh, as it relates to Jesus. Second, then we can compare their approaches to Jesus. So with the disciples, with James and John, they come up to him and they give him demands, saying, teacher, do for us whatever we ask of you. So these people who have full knowledge of Jesus, or as full as we might expect someone to, they come to Jesus with a demand but then Bartimaeus, on the other hand, it remains where he is, and he cries out for mercy, not even requesting for Jesus to come to him. So it's an exercise of faith, we might say, um, just like the centurion who we read about you know, not too long ago. Um, so where James and John approach Christ without any fear or reverence and with a demand of him, Bartimaeus remains in his humble situation and gives out a cry for mercy. So you start to see a contrast between these. No one was stopping James and John in their bold, arrogant approach to Jesus, whereas people were rebuking Bartimaeus, telling him to be silent, right? So it's a different situation there. Jesus heard the cries of Bartimaeus and instructed that the man be brought to him. Um, So Bartimaeus threw off his cloak, sprung up and came to Jesus. Um, And the disciples, in contrast, they just readily approached Jesus on their own volition. So they, they come with a demand. Bartimaeus responds to Christ's welcoming call. So you get a contrast between them. We could elaborate more on this, uh, but where where James and John just call him teacher, Bartimaeus refers to him as the son of David. It's like he's giving him this royal title. Um, So it seems like he has a bit more respect there as well. And then we can look at Jesus's response is the thread that ties these two narratives together. So Jesus responded to both his disciples and Bartimaeus with the same question. When his disciples came with a demand, he said, what do you want me to do for you? When Bartimaeus cries out for mercy, he gives him that same response. What do you want me to do for you? And and I think that this line is intended to tie these two narratives together. Jesus's disciples respond to that question with a demand to grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So their demand, it would seem, is less about enjoying the glory of Christ and more about glorifying themselves. So their demand is really self-centered, and Christ rebukes them for their request. 
They've completely missed what it means to be disciples of Jesus, even after all that they've learned from him. Um, so then you can imagine, after James and John have been rebuked, when when Jesus asked them what they what, what they wanted him to do for them, when Jesus asked that same question to the blind men, and they're, they're right next to him, you've got to be thinking, dude, that's a bad question. You know, don't don't respond to that. Don't don't tell him what we said because we kind of got rebuked for it. Um, but in comparison, Bart- Bartimaeus just says, "Rabbi, let me recover my sight." This is just, ex- you know, it's just an ordinary request. It's not self-glorifying at all. Um, he just wants to enjoy a capacity that everyone else can. He didn't want to exalt himself. He didn't um, do anything like that. He didn't seek to leverage this interaction for a position. Um, he just asks for healing. Um, so I think when we look at these two things uh, and then compare the response of Jesus, once again, Jesus just says to Bartimaeus, go your way, your faith has made you well. Um, so at that, um, Bartimaeus wants to follow him all the more, where Jesus' disciples now just gather and they rebuke one another and they're all mad at each other because James and John took Jesus off, it seems, on, on this issue. And... Um, you couldn't imagine, I think, a more different interaction between Bartimaeus and the disciples. These are just put in such contrast together. And ultimately, what I think we're to understand is that being a follower of Jesus and earnestly pursuing after him is really to be about him and not to be about finding a position for ourselves. That's not what God's kingdom is like. Um, God's kingdom has a servant theme to it that James and John are missing here. Uh, Bartimaeus, I think, got it. The disciples were blind to Jesus's mission and what he was doing. Exactly. Yeah, that's the contrast, isn't it? Yeah. Um, there's a spiritual blindness, we might say, that James and John had where they can't see what the kingdom is and they can't see who Jesus is. But then there's this blind Bartimaeus who sees Jesus fully and follows after him with faith. Does that faith hint at salvation? Well, I, I think that he's calling out to the son of David for mercy. All did he have included in that? I don't know, but certainly, as I think you guys know, there's some connection in biblical thought between physical ailments and sinfulness. So maybe there's something like that going on through his mind. But ultimately, I think he just realizes this is God's appointed king. He's the only one who can have mercy on me. And um, when Jesus asks him, well, what do you want me to do for you specifically? He just says, I want to see Um I, th- I think his faith is all-encompassing. He doesn't just want to see, but he wants to see Jesus. And more than that, he wants to follow after him. And then this, again, stands in contrast to the first blind man in Mark chapter 8. So when it says, or when Jesus says, uh, go, your faith has saved you, is that at all similar to the guy that was paralyzed in the bed where first Jesus forgives his sins and then he heals him? Is there any kind of... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think the salvation that's talked about here um, is probably multifaceted. So on the one hand, it's referencing salvation from sin, but then also I think that this is just a term for what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. Uh, So where the disciples fail to understand what it means to enter the kingdom, they think it's all about personal greatness. Blind Bartimaeus understands that entering God's kingdom is not about personal greatness, but he wants to be a fully functioning citizen in God's kingdom, and, and he leverages his newfound sight to follow Jesus. 
This has been another episode of the Resurrection Church podcast, where we're reading through the Bible in a year using the Everyday with Jesus reading plan available on the website of the Christian Standard Bible. It's been great to talk with AJ and Matthew today. I hope that you'll keep reading through the Bible with us. And as you're reading, if there are questions that we didn't hit is that you would have liked us to talk about, perhaps we can address some of those retrospectively. And um, if you're looking ahead, perhaps we can also uh, add some of those to our podcast queue. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. You can find out more at resurrectionmn.org.